0: more of my conversation with producer Marsha Posner-Williams. Stay tuned. Hello once again, and welcome to the TV Series Finale podcast. I'm your host, Trevor Kimball. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, thanks so much for joining me once again. And if you're new to the show, I'd like you to know that this show is part of tvseriesfinale.com. Now, that's a website that's devoted to TV show cancellation news, last episodes, and reunions. Today, we conclude my conversation with producer Marcia Posner-Williams. Marsha has had a very impressive career in television, beginning as an administrative assistant and eventually becoming an executive producer on top network shows. One of her earliest jobs in television, however, was on Soap, the groundbreaking sitcom of the late 70s and early 80s. From there, she went on to work on shows like Benson, Night Court, Amen, and The Golden Girls. In this second part of our discussion, Marsha reflects on some more members of the Soapcast, backstage insights, and the sitcom's unexpected cancellation. From there, we touch on some of the other shows from her resume, and then discuss another fan favorite, the Golden Girls. So sit back and relax. You're in for a treat. Sit back and enjoy the second half of my interview with Marsha Posner-Williams. Ted was. Ted
1: was the hunk on the show. Right. By every means. And Ted's, Ted was so funny in his role. He was a great guy to be around, just be around. But the character was handsome, yet really funny. And I can think of a dozen scenes where that holds true. And he, the playoff that he had with Richard Mulligan, who played his father, was just uncanny how good it was. And now he's a well-known director in sitcoms. No,
0: absolutely. Mm -hmm. And he's done a lot of them. Um, Okay, Richard Mulligan, who played Bert.
1: Well, Richard was the reincarnation of Dick Van Dyke. He Ah. felt in many, many ways. And if you look at one scene in particular, when Richard was in... The girl who worked for him, her apartment, she was played by Carolyn McWilliams. Right, who
0: went on to Benson later.
1: Right, and she had started out as his secretary on the show, and then she was nuzzling up to him, and he came back to the apartment. If you watch that scene where he was drunk and ended up standing on the coffee table and trying to get off the coffee table, which was about five inches off the ground. And balancing
0: precariously.
1: Yes, exactly. If that's not... Dick Van Dyke, I don't know what is. And he was really, and I say this with all the biggest love in my heart, that he's not with us anymore, but he was brilliant. Yeah. He, to watch this guy work day after day, week after week, year after year, was unbelievable to watch him work. And he, he was a very intense guy, you know, walked off the stage very intense.
0: Robert Mandan, who played Chester Tate
1: whom I also just saw last year, Robert Mandan was, again, I try to picture anybody else in that role, and I can't do it. I can't picture anyone else married to Jessica Tate other than Bob Mandan. Mm -hmm. And again, off the stage, a wonderful guy, he he has still the same great wife, and just fun... You know, the actors are they are very intense people for the most part because, you know, it's their face that's up on the screen. Right. And, and this was a very, very big show, and not everybody was in every episode or in every scene. So, you know, there was a lot of uh, waiting um, as, as the years went on. But every time they were on the screen, whatever it was, they knew was going to be good.
0: Did you ever get the sense that... Was there ever a sense that they weren't quite sure where to go with him in the later seasons?
1: That's an interesting point. I actually did have that sense looking back. I didn't think of it at the time. But, you know, I wasn't writing it. So I can't really comment on that.
0: Robert Guillaume.
1: Robert Guillaume was a guy who I believe came to the show with a chip on his shoulder. Mm -hmm. You know, he came in as the token black is the way he looked at it, I believe. But the greatest thing about him, or or one of the great things about him, not only was he brilliantly talented and became the hero of the show. I mean, he was the one who was the closest to Jessica. Yes. He was the one who talked more sense than anybody. Absolutely. And he's the one who had the audacity to talk back in such terms the way he did. Right. Like when the doorbell would ring and normally Jessica would he would say, "Do you want me to get that?" And Jessica would say, "If you don't mind." Yes. You know, and I'll never forget when there was a, a Tate living room scene, and John Binder, the detective, was there cuddling up with Jessica, and John Binder said to Benson, "Benson, would you like? Would you get me a coke?" And he said, "No," or something like that. I know yes. that was the one yes. exactly the words, but he he was just so arrogant, but funny. But the but the thing. Also, that I remember is he came to the show with an attitude, but years Mm -hmm. later, I remember walking into the parking lot and seeing his car, Robert Guillaume's car, and you know what it said Mm -hmm. on his license plate? No. It said, who knew? Ah. And I thought, see, there it is. Yeah. Robert became a really famous, wealthy guy. Right. But, you know, his attitude was, Hey, who knew?
2: Yeah.
1: And I really loved that on his license plate. I thought that was just great. I want to give you a little trivia in case you didn't know. Sure. That reminds me of um, Benson and all of them. Do you remember at the end of the season when Jessica was convicted of murder? Sure, end of season one. Right? Yeah. And she was led away. Yes. And as they led her away, by the way, if you go back and you listen to that episode, she had a terrible, terrible cold that day. She was not well. And they threw in a line for Robert. I think Robert said something to her when he visited her in jail earlier.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But she was really sick that show, and it was the last show of the season. But they convicted her, and they led her out of the courtroom, and the show ended. Yes, That's the way it, when you, that's the way it ended in front of the audience.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It wasn't until the show actually aired that anybody in the cast knew how that show really
0: ended. Oh, Do you
1: remember how it ended? Sure. It ends
0: with, um, you know, Jessica Tate didn't kill Peter Campbell. One of these five people did.
1: Right. and But none of the cast knew that that was going to happen until they saw it on the air, which I thought was pretty specific. Oh,
0: yeah, that's excellent. Well, I know that originally, um, Jay Johnson's character, Chuck and Bob Campbell, they were going to be the original murderer,
1: I seem to recall that. Yeah,
0: but then when it it was, you know, basically they were such a hit with the audience, they said, oh, geez, now now we can't do this. You know, we have to find somebody else, which is why Chester ended up, you know,
2: mm-hmm. taking
0: the rap for it. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and look at how great it turned out with him being in jail with, with Donnelly Rhodes and how funny that whole all turned out. And I'd have to go back and look at the Bible to see, what that really was supposed yeah. to be
0: yeah well, I seem to remember hearing i think I think Jay Johnson told me when I spoke with him that um it was it was his understanding that um essentially you know it would have come up in the end that they had done it, and then Bob was going to turn evidence on Chuck or something or something like that right, <laughs> and then right. they'd be sent away, and you know we'd never see them again, right. Back to the cast, any any thoughts on uh, Diana Canova, who played Corinne?
1: I think this helped, this show helped launch a lot of other things mm-hmm. in her career, other shows that she had and did. And I know she lives in Connecticut now.
0: Now, she left at the start of season four to go off and do her own show,
1: mm-hmm. which
0: was, uh, I believe, I'm a Big Girl Now with Danny Thomas, and I think Martin Short was in it as well.
1: Yeah, Martin Short
2: was in it, yeah. right.
0: Now, that didn't last very long. No. Do you, do you have any idea that if Soap had continued for a fifth season, that she might have come back? Or was it the sort of thing that once she was gone, she was gone?
1: No, I, I think she would have come back. I, I, I don't think there would have been a, a problem storyline with her coming back. Whether it would have been a budgetary consideration, I have no clue.
0: Right, okay. Any thoughts on Jennifer Salt, who played Eunice Tate?
1: You know, Jennifer was was a lot of fun to be around, and a wonderful actress, and you know what she's doing now? She's one of the producers of Nip Tuck.
0: Jimmy Baio, who played the youngest, Tate, Billy.
1: Right, one one of my favorites, because I loved Jimmy, because he was a kid, and you know, I just, Jimmy was the youngest of all, of everybody, Mm -hmm. and I honestly wish I could tell you I knew what has become of Jimmy. I don't know what happened to him. And I've asked people over the years, I've tried to find him on the internet, yeah. and I, I wish I could find him because I just adored him. And sometimes after the show, we would all go out or a bunch of us would go out afterwards and you know, go to an Italian restaurant that we loved in Hollywood. And he would be there and we would just, all of us would have fun. And I just wish I knew where he was. Please tell me if you find out.
0: Well, if I, if I ever uh, am able to locate him, I will certainly let you know. Arthur Peterson, who played the major.
1: Right. Arthur was just fantastic. And Arthur was so funny in what he did. And Arthur's wife, whose name escapes me at the moment, but I can tell you a funny thing about Arthur's wife, that if you, when Corinne had her baby, mm-hmm. who was possessed, of course. Yes, of course. Any time you heard that baby crying, that was yes. actually Arthur's wife. Really? Yes. She had this um, a wonderful ability just to, to cry exactly like a baby. She would hold a handkerchief up to her mouth, in front of the microphone, and you swore it was a it was a real baby, but that I, it was actually a seventy something year old woman. Building. Wow. And Arthur, you know, Arthur wasn't in every show or every scene, but when he was, he was, you just never forgot it. Because whether he would come in and be holding a pineapple and say it's a bomb and throw it through the window and everybody would just sit there bored and then an explosion would happen. Or when he would walk down the stairs of a basement with a stuffed dog saying it was his dog and then just look at the dog and face Day. Yes. I mean, come on! <laughs> How funny does it get?
0: Oh, that's absolutely wonderful. Yes, absolutely. Um, any thoughts on uh, Jay Johnson?
1: Well, let's see. What's today? We're doing. We're having this interview on Wednesday. Right. I had coffee with Jay two days ago.
0: Oh, wonderful! It's Jay
1: Jay lives within walking distance of me, and Jay and his wife and my husband and I are good friends. Mm-hmm. I adore Jay, and. I'm sure he must have told you the story about the first week that he was on the show, when uh, we rehearsed with him the three days, and then we brought cameras and audio in. And after rehearsing with cameras and audio, the audio guy said to the director, who said to the stage manager, who said to Jay, "There's something wrong with your mic. We can't. There's a reason why we're, we're we can't hear you exactly right." Well, it turned out that the problem was the guy who ran the boom microphone that hung over Jay's head. Yes. Every time Jay spoke Chuck, the boom would go towards him. When Bob would speak, the boom would go towards the puppet. Right. And therefore, Chuck or um, Jay's voice would go off, like off stage. Right. So the boom guy so was, was thinking that the voice was coming from the puppet, he was actually trying to boom puppet. That he was
0: actually throwing that Jay was actually speaking. throwing his voice. Yeah, it was
1: like he was actually speaking. So that was one of the great, great stories about when Jay first came to us. And you know, he he became so funny with every storyline, whether it was when Danny's wife got kidnapped yes. or Billy's character started dating the lesbian and it was just hysterical. And of course when you saw the scene where Billy's character, Jody, who was so fed up with Bob, berating him all the time, took him without Chuck's knowledge and hid him in the refrigerator. Right. So, yeah, Jay is just exactly today who he was back then. He's a wonderful guy that you want to sit and have coffee with. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely.
1: And he and Robert Mandan, by the way, are very, very good friends. That's what he said, yeah. So... Yeah, so that's wonderful that when Jay's had a party and I go, I always see Bob, and that's terrific. Oh,
0: that's wonderful. Um, Donnelly Rhodes, who played Dutch, the, the ex-con.
1: Wasn't he funny? Oh, wonderful. Wasn't he funny when he had a scene with Chester in jail and, and he took Chester's shaving kit away from him, and Chester said to him, well, how am I supposed to shave? And Dutch said, every morning I'll rub your face against the yes. wall. Yes, yes. Come on. That When he dumped the... the a pot of oatmeal over Eunice's head and he said, wait, do you see what I have for yes, lunch? Yes, yes. <laughs> he was hilarious. And it's it's fun when I see him now doing guest spots. I saw him as a judge on a show recently and I was just, he was a great guy to be around and the bloopers, some of the bloopers with him are
0: very funny. Now, he was, now his character was one that he was introduced at the beginning of the second season and he was, I think, one of the only characters that was introduced later that stuck around for the entire rest of the series.
1: Right. Yeah. Right. I did not know or was privy to what the original tension intention for uh, Donnelly was, mm-hmm. but he certainly his character was just kept going and going. Yeah. And it was great and of course as I recall I think you know he was Eunice's boyfriend, and then he and Corinne had a thing. I'm right. surprised if his show had gone another year, probably he and Jessica would have had it
2: <laughs> uh,
0: well, with the exception of with the exception of Chester, that you know having a having a thing with Jessica doesn't mean that your character's going to stick around for very long.
1: No, that's true. <laughs> that's very true. It's the power of the pen, what kind of, or a pencil in this case what yeah. can I tell you it's the beauty of being the writer you can you can make anything happen. Yeah, not
0: working? Well, sorry, gotta go.
1: Sorry, right. Yeah. yeah all of a sudden. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: You thought you had a good storyline? Well, that was it. Um, Sal Viscuso, who played Father Tim?
1: Sal was very, very funny, and but I can tell you, and I'm just remembering this now, that when Sal came to audition for that part, I was sitting in my office, mm-hmm. and he had come up to our floor... And was waiting around, you know, to be called in. And he walked into my office and said, I'm here to audition for this part, and I'm going to get that part. Ah. And I said, "I said, well, good luck <laughs> to you. And last for Super Bowl, I had a Super Bowl party at my house, mm-hmm. and Sal came to it because I ran into him about three years ago when Jay Johnson was doing his show that went to Broadway right. here in Los Angeles. And a bunch of us went from Soap, and I saw Katherine Hellman for the first time in years, and of course, Bob Mandan was there, and Jay Sandrich was there, and the girl who played Billy's teacher, Marla Pennington, was there. So it was great seeing these people again, and I hooked up with Sal again and saw, and, and, you know, he ended up coming over to the house for the football game. Oh,
0: that's wonderful. Uh, John Biner who played Detective Donahue.
1: How funny was that guy? Oh, and how talented. John Byner was, I don't know if you saw any bloopers from the show, but one of the biggest repetitive bloopers, I should say, not the biggest, but certainly the most repetitive, was a scene with him and Jessica in his apartment when he was trying to court her and make dinner for her. And everything went yes. wrong time and time and time again in that scene. He he was great, and I saw John several times over the next few years after the show ended. And he was always so much fun. And I believe he bought an island, and maybe even living on that island somewhere in the Caribbean now, or somewhere wow. in the Pacific. I don't I don't know, but he sure was talented. And you I, you may you probably know that he was also the voice of the alien who spoke when Bert was up in.
0: I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I knew that he did, um, you know, voices for animated cartoons and whatnot, not, and did right. a lot of impressions. But I didn't know that. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> Dinah Manoff, who played Elaine Lethkowitz, Danny's right. forced wife.
1: Yes. Boy, could she play! Did she play that to the hilt? You know, she was she was Lee Grant's
0: daughter. Oh. You oh, real Oh. Okay.
1: Yes, and Dinah went on to do that wonderful movie. I think that was called You Ought to Be in mm-hmm. Pictures. Dinah. Did Dinah, again, the acting on this show was, to me, unprecedented at the time yeah. and still is as, as far as an ensemble group goes. But she did one of the most heart-wrenching scenes in the whole series, yes. I mm-hmm. think, and which Susan and myself and some others, even in rehearsal, we would cry every single time she did this scene with Danny. Mm-hmm. And I remember... The second day we went down for a run-through, before that scene, we all moved to that set. I remember the prop guy, before the, the scene started, coming along with a box of tissues for everybody. Mm. <laughs> like, because we know what's going to happen. Right. And if I were to watch the scene today, I'd cry all over again. Yeah,
0: yeah. There's so many... Do you know s-
1: which one I'm talking about? Oh,
0: absolutely. It's the scene where she describes why... Right. You know, Danny asks her why she's right. always so mean, <clears> and she... Right, right describes what her father said to her years before. exactly. Oh, absolutely. It's one of, um, you know, there's so many memorable scenes for the series, Mm -hmm. but there's there's probably a handful or two handfuls that just stand out, you know, that just, like, wow, amazing. And they could stand on their own without the entire series around them.
1: Exactly.
0: Okay. I think the first season and a half, first two seasons, Susan Harris wrote the series pretty much exclusively. Right. And then I know she kind of pulled back, and that's when I think a lot of some other writers came in and worked on the series.
1: I can tell you that the writer who contributed the most, in my opinion, besides Susan, was Stu Silver. Right, sure. The the writer who who was almost as brilliant as she was. Um, She had other writers, but she did do a lot of rewriting Mm -hmm. of those other writers, and she really... Even though she wrote most of the first two seasons herself, she was still the driving force behind that series. Right. She was there all the time. Sure. You know. So as opposed to Benson, which she wrote the pilot and then, you know, she was still busy with soap, so so, so Benson just sort of went off on its own and she I think only wrote four episodes um that whole run.
0: Right, of uh, Benson. Right. Now, obviously, Soap ended, as we talked about earlier, um, as one of the biggest cliffhangers in television history. (laughs) Do you have any thoughts about what happened after that last episode?
1: Well, honestly, we all thought the show was coming back. Right. So to to find out it wasn't coming back was very, very unfair, we thought, to the fans, Mm -hmm. to have it so unresolved like that and I know so many people wanted everyone to get together just do one more 90 minute episode or one more one hour episode and just wrap it all up but the network I don't know whether with Thomas Harris wanted to do that I don't know I wasn't privy to that but it obviously didn't happen unfortunately right and I'll tell you there are fans for this show worldwide to this day and it is I, I just can't begin to tell you how thrilling it is for me, even all these years later, to talk about this show. It really was the pride and joy of my career. I think, even though I was still on the rise during that time.
0: Right. Right. Well, it just so well written, just and mm-hmm. so well acted. I mean, and groundbreaking in so many ways. After After soap ended, um, what what was your next project? Was it Night Court?
1: was my next project i did soap and benson and then um yes it was night court i was the associate producer of the second season of night court which okay was not a hit at the time as a matter of fact when i came on the second season they only had an, an epi- a 13 episode order and of course the show went on for like 11 years right so i went to night court And then I went back after that to, with Thomas Harris, to do a show called Hail to the Chief. Oh. Which was exactly like Soap. Absolutely. As far as, as you know, I guess, that it was a a continuing story with a dozen characters and really wacky, wonderful um, cast members with Patty Duke and Ted Bessel and... Um, murray hamilton and herschel Bernardi, and the seven episodes i have to say were seven of the funniest episodes i've ever worked on right including you know besides soap and then the show which abc billed as a show that would offend everybody and apparently it did so the show went up and down in seven episodes and the next thing we knew we were doing the golden Girls.
0: wow um, do you remember anything about the evolution of that of the idea for the series?
1: I am not positive how it all came about. I, do, I hear different stories of Susan going to the networks, wanting to do a show about these old ladies and being turned down. And then I hear another version where Brandon Tartikoff at NBC said, Susan, why don't you write a show about four old ladies? So mm-hmm. I don't know what the truth is, but okay. I do know that when, and Jay uh directed the pilot, Yes. that they had actually cast two of the women in each other's roles. Were you aware of that?
0: Yeah, the Betty White and uh, Rue McClanahan.
1: Right. They were supposed to play, they were actually cast to play each other's roles. And I I can't recall whether it was when they had started rehearsing that way or before they started rehearsing. I think it was more before they started rehearsing with Jay. Yeah. Like, you know, Betty White is known as the sex pop from the Mary Tyler Moore Show. Why? Right. I think she'd be better playing the dumb one from, you know, Sweden,
0: right? And, and, right.
1: Or with that background, and and what a wonderful change that became.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I and I seem to recall that Rue McClanahan had played kind of a a little bit of a dim-witted character in Maud.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: taking her and. Right. Yeah, taking right, and her and course, making her the sex. Bomb. B.
1: Arthur was, you know, the was B. Arthur, and the three of them were the consummate professionals. And Estelle Getty, who was, who played the mother of B, was actually one of the youngest ones in the cast in real life. That's right. And um, she was the, the new one on the block because she had done very very little in the way of a professional career. She right. had been on Broadway in Torch Song Trilogy with Harvey Fierstein, I think it was yeah um, and when you're on Broadway, it's a very different animal than being on television, just like being a network being I'm sorry, being in a drama on television is is a hundred and eighty degree difference than being in a sitcom on television. there is sure. no comparison between the two at all,
0: yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the timing. Well, from
1: Broadway to sitcom, there's just no comparison between the two.
0: Right, right, absolutely. Well, if nothing else, having to memorize lines much faster and and really kind of do mini-plays once a week from scratch. Exactly
1: right. That's, a, that's how I used to describe it, was doing a play every week. Yeah. Instead of the same lines over and over and over again for a year. Right. Like Broadway.
0: Right. Now, I heard a story about Estelle Getty that she used to tell that uh, she had to audition for the role several times and that um, that it didn't look like she was going to get it because she was young and she was too energetic for, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a mm-hmm. senior character like that. I heard that,
1: like that story, too. And then she walked in with the old lady clothes and the bag hanging over her, her arm. And I don't know what she did, if anything, with her hair, but that's what got her the part.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, the pilot featured a live-in cook named Coco, I think.
1: Right, he was the house boy. Okay. And he was, was, I feel so badly for that guy. Yeah. Because it was originally supposed to be the five of them for the whole series. Okay. And we shot the pilot with him, and he was great. But after they saw the pilot, everyone decided, what do do we really need that fifth character for? The four women are so strong that we don't need it. And I feel so sorry for this guy who could have had a lot, of residual money, as right. you can imagine. Well, seven years of a hit show. Yeah, I always felt badly for well, him. Well, it's one of those
0: things, you know.
1: Well, you know what they say—that's showbiz.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, especially network television. Mm-hmm. Um, any memories that you can share about some of the about the cast members of that show? B. Arthur.
1: Uh. Well, B. B was very well known for being B. She didn't like to wear shoes and she never would until we actually shot the show. Mm-hmm. She didn't like to wear makeup and never would until we actually shot the show and somebody put it on her. So she was who she was. Betty was the consummate. They were all very professional, you know, no matter what was going on. When red light hit, boom, they were into it, they were on it. And B, Betty, and Rue thrived in front of the audience. Mm-hmm. Estelle was scared to death of the audience. That's
0: what I'd heard. Okay.
1: She was very, very fearful of the audience. And, you know, Estelle passed away recently. Right. She had a very advanced form of Alzheimer's. And I think looking back, it started way back then because she had trouble remembering her lines, and it was very difficult for her. Sometimes she would write them on a prop in the set or write them on the table in the kitchen or on the cupboard or something right. to help her do it. But obviously she was she was one of the most loved, beloved characters on the show, especially with kids, believe it or not, like 15 and under, loved her. Right. Because she spoke to her daughter the way they would want to talk to their parents. Right, sure. So they really identified with her.
0: Well, she also had some of the sauciest dialogue. She could get away with things. Well, almost like, in many ways, like the major from Soap.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And that's why the kids loved her.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Any thoughts about Rue McClanahan?
1: Rue was, I just remember Rue calling me one day and saying, could you have Wayne come over and help me figure out the thermostat on my house? I can't figure it (laughs) (laughs) out. Um, I don't have any, you know, definite thoughts on Rue, except that she she was, they were all just very, very professional. And they came in, they did their job, they left. Right. And and it was just, it was like soap, in that we would sit down on a Monday morning, and the scripts were just brilliant. And there was little tweaks along the way, but very rarely, as in all the other shows I ever worked on, did they have to, with the exception of, Good Grief, because it was written by Sue Silver, very rarely did they make sweeping changes in a script. Right. From the read day to the shoot day. Right. Whereas I worked on other shows where we'd have as many as 30, 40 revised pages on the shoot day. Right. So try doing that in front of an audience. Yeah. When you've just gotten a whole half a script to, do, to learn. So I was always very, very proud of the writers uh, of the Golden Girls and the the cast, and I don't, I, again, it's one of those shows where I can't imagine anybody else in those roles.
0: Now, while you were on the show, I believe it won two Emmys for Best Comedy Series? Correct.
1: And three Golden Globes as well.
0: What was that experience like? Were you, did you attend the awards?
1: I attended the awards, and I actually got to walk up on stage both times for the Emmys. Wow. I didn't say anything, but I didn't need to say anything. I was there, and, and my father was watching and my sister was watching and that was the most important thing. Oh, that's great. And it was pretty spectacular to think of where I had come from when I first moved to California and I told you those first two years were so hard for me. Sure. That, that I, the struggle was just unbelievable and then to come to that was really spectacular. I mean, you know, I've, I've done a lot of college lectures and one-on-one lectures and... and I, I, the great thing, the beauty of talking to young people for me is that I'm not speaking from a book. I'm not lecturing from a book. I'm talking from my life experience. Right. And to talk about what I struggled with to getting the statues that sit on my mantelpiece. Yeah. It, it's really a great story for me personally
2: yeah easy to understand.
0: I
1: can tell you one very funny thing that happened on the show that of course the audience never saw well mm-hmm. the the viewing audience never saw if you were lucky enough to be in the studio audience, you saw it, but we were shooting an episode that had to do uh, i guess about christmas and all and the women all decided that instead of buying uh, being so um, materialistic that that they were going to do something different and so we were doing the scene just in rehearsal. Actually, I don't know now whether it was done in front of the audience. Okay. But I don't maybe it was. I'd have to go back and look. But the scene was that that they're going to exchange gifts. And it's Blanche's turn and she says, "Well, I decided to make something personal for each and every one of you." And they open up their present and what it is and B, I guess B's character, Dorothy says, Oh, a calendar: the men of Blanche's life okay, <laughs> which of course, is in total keeping with her character, sure, but what the women, none of them knew was that the night before, as the prop guys were making up what this prop book was going to be like, yes, they took a camera and shot themselves in the weirdest, most ridiculous positions, oh no, and put this in and put these pictures in the book so that when b arthur opened the book she took one look at these pictures which she had never seen and had no idea was coming and started to laugh so hard and we we got that on tape so i think it actually might have been done in front of the studio audience or else i I think it actually was done on the camera blocking day because we have it on tape
2: right so the camera
1: was rolling at the time so I'm not, yeah, I think it was actually done on the camera blocking day, but boy, was that funny.
0: Oh, I, I remember that bit, and that just adds a whole other layer to an already very funny part of the show.
1: Right, exactly.
0: Can you can you tell me, um, in wrapping up, what, what are you doing today? Are you involved with television?
1: I am not. I've actually been retired from the sitcom world since 97. Okay. Um, I have a business on the side. I produced and co-owned seven fitness videos for yoga, three Pilates, and so I oversee all of that. Wow. I have okay. um, actually just last week had two people come to my home to pitch me a new idea for a sitcom. and they just wanted to get my feedback on it. and I actually it's the first idea I've heard in years and years that if I'd had the power to greenlight a project on the spot, I would have. So I was giving them all my input because they're just at the beginning of all this. And they said, well, you know, we'd like you to executive produce this if we can sell it. And I said, well, I won't produce anymore because I'm done with that. But if you can sell it, I'll executive produce it. But, And I'm trying to sell a couple of movies, one for uh, the screen and one for TV. But, you know, I'm just enjoying my life so much. I've taken a lot of trips this year. Right. And I really enjoy that. I had an amazing career. I actually achieved more than I ever thought I would when I first came out here at twenty two or twenty three years old. Sure. So I am I have never looked back for one second when I left the business and said, Oh, I wish I hadn't done that because I'm very happy I did.
0: And that concludes this edition of the podcast. I want to thank Marsha once again for taking the time for this interview. It was truly a pleasure to speak with you. And I hope that you're doing well in whatever you do, that the year is ending on a good note and that next year is even better. As always, I enjoy hearing from you, either feedback on the podcast or any questions you might have. You can send them to podcast at tvseriesfinale.com. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so for free. There's feed information on the website, or you can go to the iTunes store and search for TV Series Finale. You'll find us under the free podcast. If you like the show and would like to support it, please leave a review on iTunes. By doing that, you help promote the show and help other people to find it, which helps keep it going. And of course, don't forget to visit the TVSeriesFinale.com website for the latest cancellation news, petitions, last episodes, and reunion information on your favorite shows i'm trevor kimball and until next time stay tuned